Hey guys, before we get started, we just have a quick message from our sponsors. Just kidding, we don't have any sponsors, but I do want to say thanks to you, our community and membership at New Club. We started a golf society as a way to connect great people to great golf. Uh, we started the bag drop with that same premise in mind, sharing the stories and experiences of the people that we are so fortunate to meet in this game. So if you have any ideas or suggestions for us, or want to know more about membership at New Club, shoot us an email. It's membership at newclub.golf or visit our website, which is newclub.golf. Thanks for your interest and enjoy your game. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Backdrop. I'm your host, Matt Considine. Today, we spoke with Andy Mack, former collegiate golfer for the University of Illinois and the co-founder and CEO of Chicago-based tech company, Snap Mobile. Born and raised in the northwest suburbs, Andy grew up as a caddy at Butler National, where he learned the game of golf and learned a thing or two about the game of business. After finishing up his college golf career at U of I, Andy entered the agency world of technology, building new mobile applications for large corporations before he saw an idea and made the leap into entrepreneurship for himself. Andy and I leave no stone unturned. We talk about the highs and lows of entrepreneurship, the changing relationship between business and the game of golf, and find out how J.B. Holmes helped Andy make one of the quickest decisions of his life. So listen in and let us know what you think. We're always looking for new ideas, suggestions, and spirited additions to the membership at New Club. Enjoy your game. All right. Uh, Andy Mack, thanks for joining the backdrop, man. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we'll talk a lot of things. We'll talk some golf. We'll talk entrepreneurship. Uh, maybe some innovation, apps. But I met you on the basketball court. I'm staring at a, a Papa shot here in your office. <laughs> two of them. Uh, two of them, right. Four hoops. Yes. And, uh, you know, we were playing a pickup game in Burr Ridge. I got the assignment of guarding your ass. <laughs> and I, I just wanted to uh, talk some hoops. Yeah. So you got you got a lot of game. Where, well, where it was that a long from? time ago. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I still try and play on occasion, but I think as you get older, um, you realize your game goes away pretty quickly. So we're fortunate we still play – on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning. And we've got about four or five generations of guys that play. So everybody from a teenager to a guy who's in his 60s. So we still try and relive the glory days, if you will. It's awesome. It's <laughs> it's like, you know, hoops junkies just can't give it up. And it's it's so fun to get back, make you feel like a kid again when you're out there. Where do you guys play? In the suburbs? It's in the suburbs, yeah, northwest suburbs. It's a local park district. But there's anywhere from 12 to 25, maybe even 30 guys that show up three days a week. It's been going on for 23 years. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a ton of fun. And are you still that dynamic role player that I remember guarding? That no. <laughs> I um, yeah, have a family now and a, a business to worry about, so I stay outside the three-point line. and uh, <laughs> Like the rest of us? Shoot from, shoot from distance to try and stay away from the lane. I don't need any rolled ankles or... Achilles. Yeah, yeah, no, that that definitely <laughs> at this age you can't be sidelined no, with you. what you have going on. Um, who'd you model your basketball game after as a kid? So you grew up in Northwest suburbs, yes, of Chicago. Who was like your your hero from a hoop standpoint? It's a great question. You know, it's actually T.J. Ford. I've never been asked that question, but I know in high school he was the it point guard at Texas University of Texas. And he was a smaller guard, but he was fast. I wouldn't say that he was the best shooter in the world, and neither was I. 
And he just, he had an incredible season. I think my, it was either my sophomore or junior year, and I just became enamored with him. So I wore a, a burnt orange Texas t-shirt to practice every day in high school, and that was my guy. No kidding. I don't, he, I don't know that he ever made it to the NBA. Yeah. But in college, there was a year or two in college where he was. That's a name I wasn't expecting to hear. I mean, I haven't heard that name in a long time. Uh, and he's not a Chicago kid or anything, nope, is he? No, not just, at all. You were just enamored with he, DJ Ford. I think he took college basketball by storm for a couple months, and it maybe even been that year or two years, and he was my guy. Nice. He was my guy. I was expecting, I mean, you're a child of the 90s, right? <laughs> yeah. 90s Bulls. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, I think you look at, hey, what are my physical abilities and who do I kind of match up with? And, you know, you look at a point guard who tries to run the show and distribute the ball and slash and get to the basket, and that was him. It'd be very easy to say Jordan or Pippen or any of those guys, but no, it was T.J. Ford. Wow, T.J. Ford. So besides from being a diehard T.J. Ford fan, (laughs) uh, you know, for our our members and and the audience we have, tell us a little bit about Andy Mack, you know, who you are, uh, what you do. Yeah, born and raised in the northwest suburbs, so grew up in that area Uh, from a personal perspective. You know, married, have two small kids, which is kind of the, the pride and joy of my life, my son and my daughter and my wife. And from a business perspective, well, let me go a little little bit further back. I played golf at the University of Illinois, so that was a, a huge treat um, as a college kid to get to travel around and play some of the best golf courses in the country um, while going to a great school. That was something that I had a ton of fun with. Uh, got into the working world 2008, 2009. It was kind of a tough job market. Um, was fortunate to get a job right out of college, learn some things about business, got into, I'd say, entrepreneurship and startups in late 2010, um, joined a small business that was building mobile apps for both small and, and mid-sized companies. There was only a handful of people there, but it was it was fun to walk into an environment every day where your work mattered. Um, and for me, that meant, hey, I need, to, I need to pull my weight every single day. And there was something about that that, really motivated me and I was passionate about it and that kind of led to late 2014 you know I joined uh, my business partner here Brandon and we started Snap Mobile Mm -hmm. and it's been four and a half years we've been through an acquisition Um, you know we've made our fair share of mistakes and we've had our fair share of wins and successes as well and you know for those who don't know who we are and what we do we're a technology partner so we go in and we meet with our customers and we understand who they are and what their business needs are. And if we can build them a piece of technology that helps them grow their business, that's what re- we, we get really passionate about. Um, and that's what we spend our time doing. You're, in a way, you're still that point guard. You know, you're still kind of the facilitator dishing things out and, and running yeah. your own business. And it's, yeah, I am really passionate about meeting great people and finding out what, what's going on in their business and how do we help, even more so than just technology. And I think some of our story goes back to I meet anywhere from 30 to 40 to 50 new people every month. And that means I don't spend a lot of time in in the details of our business anymore. But it means I have the network and the, and the power to be able to make introductions and share stories and give back in the best way that I can. And that's a lot of fun for me. So, yes, if that's yeah. the point guard analogy where, hey, you're, you know, you're passing and distributing and giving back, that's a ton of fun for me. That's why I get up every morning and I'm excited to do what I do. That's awesome. Now, we, we can always tell, you know, every interaction we've had with you, you do enjoy yeah. what you do. You work hard, but, man, you, you seem to always be having a lot of fun when you're doing it. And that was the point. I think one of the reasons why we started the business was to go out and help people. But to get up and do something every day that you're passionate about, I don't think that can be replaced. Um, you know, if I were to think about, hey, what are the things and the values that I want to teach my kids? 
you know, to go and work and provide for your family is absolutely you know, your first responsibility. But if you could do something that you love every day with people you care about, you can't beat that. And I'm fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. The um, I, I think the coolest thing about becoming an entrepreneur, or one of them, there's quite a few, I guess. Uh, you meet other interesting entrepreneurs who have different backgrounds, and I always like hearing the the moment that they consider themselves an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, what was the catalyst for you? So you, you're working uh, in Chicago still. You're you know born and raised, and you're working for an agency. Yeah. Um, when did it hit you that you you were gonna do this? And and what was that first moment that you remember? Oh, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur now. I think you learn. You 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 see this opportunity that you feel uniquely positioned to take advantage of. And I don't know that that's the moment that you feel you're an entrepreneur, but I think that's that moment where you get excited and say, okay, and no different from the business that you're building, is you see an opportunity in the market and you decide that I am uniquely positioned to take advantage of that. And that likely comes from work in that industry or knowing that first customer or finding a way to get that first investor. And for me, I just saw a natural evolution for how technology was being talked about, sold, built, and deployed. And, you know, I had this thought of, I think there's a better way to do that. And I, you know, I think I can go out and find the right customers that would be interested in making that happen. And I don't know that there was any moment along the way where I raised the flag and said, I am an entrepreneur. I think it hits you in the face how hard it is. And that's the day you realize, okay, I'm out on my own and I'm doing this. And that's what entrepreneurship is. I think over the last... I couldn't put a time frame on it, but entrepreneurship has become sexy. It's become cool. It's become something that, you know, higher education schools are starting to teach and train. It's a lot harder than people think, as you guys know, right? It's not as glamorous. And, you know, the first post that you put on Facebook and LinkedIn that tells everybody you're an entrepreneur and you're starting your new company, well, everybody gives you the, the high five and the like and the, the congratulations, but then a week goes by and nobody cares. And now it's time for you to go out there and dig it out of the dirt on your own. I think that's probably the moment where you realize, okay, this would, this is what entrepreneurship really is, and you have to make it go. Because yeah. if you don't wake up every morning and find some level of success, you're done. Yeah. That's what entrepreneurship is. I like that's a good definition of it. Uh, you you wrote a, uh, and it's one of the reasons we wanted to, to have you on this this week for the podcast is you wrote a great uh, post for LinkedIn on on the topic of entrepreneurship, and I just thought it was re- it was really. Uh, humanizing is the kind of approach that you you spun on it and talked about some of those realities and one was family you already, you've mentioned it already but uh you know the importance of family those people to rely on but what i'm what i was curious of what what tell me a story uh of a time that someone reacted to when you told them what you were doing and they're like wait what are you doing yeah <laughs> you know because i i think we all uh, family in particular is they, they want you to be safe they want to protect you right um, friends and close ones, uh, but was there any good stories of when you made the leap into starting Snap that uh, they're like, how people reacted, like, whoa? Yeah, I would generalize it and say that most people you would share would think you're nuts <laughs> and you're crazy. Um, you know, there's no, there's no immediate salary, there's no benefits, there's no customers, there's no brand, there's no reputation. So imagine walking into the office of a business and saying, I'm here to help you, and they ask for your case study deck and there's nothing. There's no website, there's no there's no history, there's no testimonials. So I think the people who aren't involved in entrepreneurship who don't understand that, it makes them nervous, family included. Uh, 
mom, dad, wife, we were having our first child as our business was being built. So these are all outside influences that could make you question whether or not you're capable. But I think entrepreneurs are built, you know, for those who can't see, we're sitting right in front of a brick wall. Entrepreneurs are built to believe that they can run through the wall yeah. and they're going to figure out a way. And their job, I think, as a true leader is to help people, help other people understand that they are going to get through that obstacle and that other people are going to follow them through it. So there wasn't there wasn't a particular moment, but I would say at the time we were starting, I didn't have a major network downtown of other entrepreneurs. I wasn't surrounded by a lot of people who had started businesses. So you're you know, you're bouncing ideas off of friends and even potential customers. One of the first things I did when we were starting our business, I still have the list today. I went out and talked to a hundred potential new customers. A hundred. And I would say ninety seven and ninety eight of them said Great, good, good luck. Uh, we're not interested. Go, you'll go, go. Good luck. And you know th- those are the things that make you nervous. Yeah. And if there's one or two people that you find that that might be interested in working with you, that's what you had to hang your hat on. Yeah. Those are not good odds, though. Those <laughs> no, are not good no, odds. Those percentages definitely. Yeah. Don't. But you, you're right. It's about that wall and pushing through it, um, and having that kind of fearlessness. I feel like. Uh, I always I, I stumbled upon one of the guys that we've had on the podcast actually, Dr. Joe Parent has a quote, you know, be more curious than afraid. Yeah. And I, I've been living kind of both my golf life <laughs> and my entrepreneur life uh, by that phrase because you just got to want to learn from. I'm, I'm sure in those 100 conversations, right, you probably have valuable information that came from every single one of them. Yeah. And um, relationships and the willingness to ask for help, I think, as an entrepreneur. You very much have to put your your ego aside, and you're asking, you're constantly asking people for help and advice and criticism. And I think it's a natural human tendency to not want to take criticism. But when you're building a new business, bad information or feedback on how you could be better is the thing you want the fastest. So you ask people, or you share people, here's my vision, here's my business, and you walk this fine line of, hey, I'm building something that you might not think is ready yet or that you might not think is there it's coming and you're going to love it when it's ready and on the other side of that is hey tell me what i can't see and what i don't know so that i can make it better yeah so similar to the you know having that community and the feedback um and you know your role model at tj ford did you have a <laughs> tj ford uh, i'm gonna see how many times i can mention tj <laughs> ford um did you have a, a role model or maybe a an entrepreneur you looked up to or somebody that was either a mentor or just a, a good framework of, you know, that's how I'd like to do it or that's how I'd like to work towards. Like, did, who was who that for you? Yeah, I did, 100%. It was one individual who, he painted a picture for how hard it would be. And his example was as deep and as dark as you think the hole is today, it's going to get 10 times deeper. And this gentleman constantly coached me up on the activities that need to be done every day to push your business forward. Uh, he was also someone that I could call and get feedback from. You know, when we made mistakes and his thing was, hey, let's never get too high. The wins are never as good as they seem and the losses are never as bad as they seem. And to have someone like that who you talk to, and I mean on a daily basis, to just check in. Here's what happened. What do you think? Here's what happened. What do you think? That was my first real lesson into surround yourself with people who have been there and done it. No different than golf. Yeah. Right? You want to be around great players because they've seen it, they've been there and done it, and they can teach you how to react. And those are really important lessons for any entrepreneur I'd recommend. Surround yourself with as many people as possible who have been through it. That's uh, it's cool to hear you say that You know, it starts with one 
yeah. individual. And I, and I know your network is now hundreds yeah. of entrepreneurs and uh, businesses that you've directly helped and, you know, friends, I'm sure that maybe you haven't worked with, but you guys collaborate and, and talk about um, the stresses and challenges of owning your own business. Because uh, you've been kind to introduce us to some of those people. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, thanks for that. But uh, you also started a business that is on the premise of selling to entrepreneurs, too, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's probably a few people that know the psyche of an entrepreneur better than Andy Mac. Yeah. Um, what's it like on a, what's it, what's it like selling to entrepreneurs as being one, being one yourself? I would say the majority of them are not ready or don't have a full picture of what it looks like. There's a couple things that, that go down when we talk to entrepreneurs. The first of which is, um, technology and entrepreneurship is never as simple as if you build it, they will come, right? There's a lot of people that come through our doors that think I'm going to build this incredible product and poof. Once it's ready, there's going to be a million people that know about it, and it simply doesn't work that way. So I think the the stance that I take is just to share what I've been through and what I've seen and to paint a picture of reality versus what the perception might be. That's the first step. The second is we just want to do right by everybody that we have a chance to work with. And you and I had a similar conversation. Um, it'd be very easy for us as a business to just take on all revenue that walks through the door, to build, 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 build. But for us, we have to create meaningful results for all of our clients. We have to add value. That's personally important to me. And therefore, there are some customers who are just not the right fit for us and vice versa. So I try and, um, if the first is, hey, paint a picture of reality, the second is, do we truly believe that we can help? I don't, I, most, of my, most of our clients have become friends. I don't want to sit across the table from any of them, 6, 12, 24, even f months or five years down the road, and say that we didn't add value to their entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. It's important to me, therefore it's important to our company. And if we can do right by those clients and we can help them get a little better, I go to bed at night and sleep fine. Yeah, and you, uh, speaking from experience, you, you uh, live what you're preaching because uh, our first conversation about more than maybe two years ago related to New Club and our golf society that you know was slowly growing from 2013 until that time we sat down, uh, I was looking to build a mobile app, talking to other dev shops that are putting together plans and telling me, you know, here's what we're going to do. And, and your first thing was, uh, you know, do it inexpensively and learn as much as you can. Don't spend on this big thing because it's going to change. And uh, I'm very thankful that you told us that because, uh, you know, we had a whole year on uh, okay technology, got the job done, but it was night and day of what we would have started with, yeah. you know, because we found out people used it differently. People want to play their golf in a certain way. They want to see certain things that we necessarily weren't thinking of. So uh, that was helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I take great pride in that conversation. That is the way we want to treat people. Yeah. It has to be right for you. And when it's right for you, then it will be right for us. And you're not the only person that we would have that conversation with. So I've been around enough. I've been doing this for 10 years to have a sense for when people might be ready, which on the flip side gives me a sense for when people are not ready. And if you just tell them, hey, here's what I think. Yeah. That's not always the way. It doesn't always work out where you would tell somebody now is not the right time. I'm thankful that you came back. It doesn't always work that way. But if the first conversation gets you to a place that's better for your business, I'm good with that. Yeah, I mean, better better for our business and better for our our customers, which are our members of New Club, right? Mm -hmm. And they will now have a better app because we waited. Um, and and it's it's cool. 
it's it's a way to work. work done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so all those entrepreneurs, and you don't have to name names, but sure. What's what's the craziest app idea someone's hit you with? Oh man, <laughs> you see a lot of dating apps, a lot of dating apps, and that generally comes from the entrepreneurial community, and they're all over the map in terms of who they're targeting and what they're trying to accomplish. You know, everything from cigarette break dating apps to you name it. You know, and that's, that's the first one that comes from. These are not bad ideas. Entrepreneurship is not about having the best idea. I truly believe that. Ideas do not win the game. Yeah. It's about execution. You know, it's about hustle. It's about perseverance. And it's about going out and winning and getting the job done. Yeah. And that's what's been fascinating for me over 10 years. I've seen incredible ideas fail epically that had everything that they should have to win. And I've seen horrible ideas come to fruition and work and build real value because the right people are leading it and they execute. Customer service is great. And they just, they're learning from their market and changing over time and they end up winning. So that, that's what's fun for me. And you say, hey, um, what's the best idea and the worst idea? And, and frankly, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It's never about the idea. Yeah the right people will figure out a way to be successful. Our business here has changed probably five times since we started. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to keep changing and evolving to meet the needs of our customers. And we're going to get it right. No different than what you're working on and doing. Right, right. Timing has a lot to do with those ideas too, right? Is something yes. that looks on Luck. paper brilliant Luck today. You know, uh, apps, I'm sure in your world, right? You guys are probably looking at well, what's going to happen to apps as yeah. cell phones become, you know, now watches and different stuff that's out there? Um, you got to evolve. So do ideas. And apps may not be around five years from now. You know, we think about what what is a customer experience journey or an employee experience journey look like? And it might be through a watch. You know, it might be through a hologram. It might be on a window. It, it could be any number of different things, and we need to be there to, to capture that. But it just, it, it just further proves the point that the idea is important to get you started but it's going to evolve in so many different ways after that. Yeah. Well, since our podcast is about golf, yeah. we probably should talk <laughs> some golf. Uh, but let's not move off of business just yet. I, th- I One thing, I, as I was kind of noodling on some ideas to chat with you about, um, you know, we met on the basketball court. We, we're, we're now working together as a client of Snap. And most of those discussions occurred in coffee shops. Uh, we're both big golfers. Yeah. We both played collegiate golf. We never played golf together. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's that it's like a, sh- it's a shame. It's of a course shame. it's a shame. But I'm asking from a level of, you know, business 20 years ago, we would have had four rounds of golf and, the, and deals would have been done on the yeah. golf course. So I'm just curious what you think golf's place is in, in business moving yeah. forward. You know, I, I know some business still gets on the golf course. I certainly have, have done it in past jobs, but um, nowhere near the levels of yeah. our parents and you know folks from prior generations. You know, what, what do you think golf and business are at, and where, where will they be? Yeah, I'm still a huge fan, and I obviously play a lot of golf. Um, if there are people that I truly want to get to know, and uh, they are willing to take the time to to spend those four or five hours with me, it, golf is for me the best way to be able to do that. In my mind, there's no better way to get to know about somebody's business and their family and the things that are important to them. I think a natural evolution of even entrepreneurship and tech is people are doing 30-minute coffee meetings, and they're rushing and rushing, and I'm guilty of that. I mentioned I meet 30 to 40, sometimes even 50 new people a month. You cannot do that on the golf course. There's just simply not enough time. 
So I would say, hey, people that I'm just trying to get to know and introduce myself to, coffee is fine. But that next step, if you truly want to build a long-term partnership with somebody, golf is where I do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the game. I think it's a huge part of what I do today in business, and that will continue on forever. I've met so many incredible people on the golf course, and I don't think that will ever change. There are plenty of people that don't play golf, and it's not their thing, and that's fine. It just happens to be where I have made so many great friendships and will continue to for a long, long time. Yeah. No, the, the, the um, I think it's the nature of tech. Yeah. You know, more jobs are more technology focused and the crunch on time, just like in people's life, business is no different. Everyone's trying to be efficient and squeeze in 30 minute meetings. But I agree with you. Getting someone on the golf course is the best way to reveal their character. Yeah. You know, how they, you can almost see how someone's priorities in life yes just uh, displayed on the golf course it's fascinating to me and the more you play the more you're in tune to that and you really do get to know people i mean you couldn't agree more especially if you're walking <laughs> we're, we're walking encouraged golf yes. society and yeah. you know even people think today that walking slows down the game and but those are things that you cannot replace that you can't do that anywhere else we had uh that discussion yesterday we were meeting with a golf course who um was talking about pace of play issues and, and basically phrasing that a cart would be you know some solution to it and uh we've actually tasked a uh, math professor from the university of georgia <laughs> i'm not making this up kevin moore what's up kevin uh he's like one of the only guys that listens to our podcast <laughs> he is doing a study on pace of play yeah. related to walking yeah. and so uh he's controlling all kinds of variables trying to figure out you know sure. does it save time probably not in the end but he's gonna prove it for us it depends if you get the right people in a walking group go 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 hit, 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 and, you know, you spend time talking in between shots. It can be done. It can be can done. Be done. The, the one study he already did, this is kind of cool, if you're playing in a foursome, uh, you're, you're obviously, and, you, and you're riding in carts, you're obviously spending a lot of time with the person in the seat next to you, yeah. but you spend very little time with the, the other two. And his analysis showed you spend 50% more time with everybody yep. when you're walking. Which for me, that's that's why I'm. That's a big reason I'm out there is to to socialize and, and not you know, it's not like I'm at a Starbucks just chatting. Sure, I'm I'm out to, to play a game, but also you know walk those fairways with people and it, it's just therapeutic. Yeah, in a cart you see people on the tees and the greens. Right, and if you're walking, you're with them the whole way. Yeah, and carts are okay every once in a while. I don't yeah, want it to I always agree. be bashing. I agree, but I but agree. I think sounds like we agree on. It. Yes. Um. So Andy's golf. Let's talk about your game. Where is it at? <laughs> it's it's in a decent state. You know, it's around a zero. Very handicapped. And I think the thing for me after college, it was a big – and I'd be curious to get your thoughts too. It was a big difference to go from playing well, – I used to tell people playing eight days a week. Uh, you know, you're, you're playing and you're practicing and you're stretching and you're working out and everything is directed towards making your game better. And then you get into the working world and no time is spent making your game better. I really struggled with that. And, you know, it's been 10 years since I was in college. And, you know, my game's in a decent spot. I shoot the occasional good round, shoot the occasional bad round, but everything's kind of somewhere in the middle. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. So it's it's okay. It's not great, <laughs> but it's not bad. And, you know, for the people that I play with, if you can hit one or two good shots that they think are, are good, then that's great. Yeah. yeah. That's... And I'm at a place where I enjoy it. Um, coming out of school, I think – Everything was about shooting the best score possible because you were trying to win tournaments and qualify for events. And 
Now I just go out and enjoy the game and the people that I'm with, and the score doesn't dictate how I feel about how the round went. Will you? Are, do you play any competitive stuff anymore? Not so much. No. Uh, there's. I would like to get back to it at some point, but when kids and family and home and work, it's just been been tough. Yeah. Tell me, think of uh, well, mindset between a competitive round and just and just a normal round. Do you think they are? Night and day, you know, is there a lot of people will say there's tournament, there's golf, and there's tournament golf. Yeah. Do you think they're they're night and day, or do you think there's enough similarities where you can approach a day on the golf course the same way, whether you're playing in a, you know, CDGA qualifier or you're playing with a group of buddies? I would like to tell you that they're the same. I don't think they are, and it's been a while since I played in a very competitive tournament. I, mean, I played some of the USGA stuff. I think I'm better today because it's not as important to me. And I'm okay yeah. with that. And yeah. it feels odd admitting that, but hey, the outcome is the outcome. I'm going to go out there and have fun and swing away at it, and I don't spend a ton of time preparing. And in some way, shape, or form, I'm you know, I'm shooting decent scores in some of those events because it just doesn't matter. Yeah. it, it Expectations is yeah. a big part of it, right? Um, but you, you've said it so well on just enjoying it. And I, I think the guys that – are grinding over those tournaments if they could look at those more enjoyable rounds and take a, a couple of the things from those rounds yeah. and apply them to the tournament um you know, another motto we like to live by which is uh mark always says i butcher this so i'll try to get it right but um it's not if you play better you'll enjoy the game more it's if you enjoy the game more you're going to play better yes so that, that's a hard thing to do because you're really you know, we all want to score well. Yes. We want the report card to look good. Like yeah. it, it, that does matter to all of us. To say it doesn't matter is total farce. But um, it can get there yeah. by just focusing on the other stuff. Oh, man, it's a nice day. This course is really cool. Yeah, uh, that swing felt good. You know, like and that ties back to you mentioned the article that I wrote for LinkedIn and family and health. And it's like entrepreneurs forget about that sometimes. And if your health is in a good spot and your family's in a good spot, you can show up to work every day focused on the things that matter. And I believe it's no different in golf. You know, if you're just going out there to enjoy it and maybe business is in a good place and family's in a good place and you're focused on the right things around, you're probably going to play pretty good. Yeah. And, you know, the opposite makes it more difficult. I have to shoot 66 today in order for me to feel good and have a good time. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. I, I got to... Uh ask about your your days in the caddy yard yeah so a good like a disturbing percentage of our members are former caddies yeah go figure you know you get the bug <laughs> at a young age so tell us about your experiences being a caddy yeah how that's all come full circle for you i, I think it's you, you got a pretty cool story from the yeah. caddy yard one so one of the things that i think helped me the most in business my my dad played professional golf so i grew up on a golf course with adults and as a, you know, a teenager, you have to mature relatively quickly to keep up on the conversation and just not be, to be a part of the group. And I think that lent itself well to caddying as well, where you jump out, you know, at some of these clubs where, you know, the members might have done well in business and you're 16 and 17 and you know the game, right? So if you know the game and you know how to handle yourself at a level of maturity that's a little bit older than, you, than what your actual age is, you can start to communicate, and if you can teach and coach a 15, 20, 25 handicap, how to shoot like a 10 handicap, that goes a long way. And then if you can start to parlay that into, uh, hey, Mr. Smith, 
what did you do in business and, and how did that help and what did you learn and what did you talk about and how did you get mentorship? That's the thing I had the most fun with. The golf part came naturally just because I played the game so much and helping people get two or three shots better on the course was fun. But then using that trust that you would earn to ask questions about business was incredible. The yeah. stuff that you learn from, again, if you surround yourself with people that have been successful, you're going to learn from them. You know, you ask the right questions mm-hmm. and you're willing to listen. So that's what ca- that's what caddying meant to me outside of, hey, it was a chance to go make some money. It was a chance to be around the golf course. But being around successful people, helping them get better at the game and then asking them how and why were you successful at business and, and learning and listening and applying that, I would recommend it for anybody. Yeah, it's... I, I hope more kids continue to be caddies. Yeah. You know, you worry about some courses. Of, that's another reason I, we're kind of anti-cart is give kid an opportunity to have that experience. Yeah. I mean, look at what you've uh, grown into from there, you know, and have those relationships, those conversations, those soft skills. That's huge. And, you know, you mentioned, you asked the question about my mentor. The place that I met that particular mentor was carrying his back. Wow. And that was when I'm... 19, 20, and parlay that into someone that you play more golf with, and then someone who starts to mentor you, and then someone who starts to invest in your company, and then someone who's probably even more involved in the business. Now, that's where it started. It started on the golf course as a caddy. And you caddied at? Butler National. Yeah. I, I think that's also a cool story. You know, not, I, don't, I don't know the percentages by any means, but to, to be a caddy someplace growing up, and then to be able to do well and become a member there. That's got to feel pretty cool. It it was. Um, it's such a special place, and I grew. I feel like I grew up there, and to get to know the membership, and you know, then to be accepted as a part of the club, um, it's a real treat. And the you know the membership is incredible, and they've been great to me. And I, hey, I hope to have the opportunity one day to give back <laughs> yeah. in the in the way that things have been given to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, have you played the new course at Medina yet? I have. Yes. yes. How's not that? well, obviously not this year, but I, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. Um, that place is great for families. I think there is a prestige about the club, and for me, I'm getting to a place in my life where you know it's I want my wife to be involved in kids, and you know the shorter course there at Medina. All I could picture was as my son and my daughter pick up the game. I hope they pick up the game, and if they do, you know that's where they would learn and and grow and be able to have me teach them. Yeah. So those are the things that. I think about yeah your your coach growing up I'd assume was your dad it was yeah and that's hey that's always an interesting thing too and you know my dad was a very good player at a very young age and he taught for a living and you know as son and a father and there's always um, you know a little bit of friction there and he wants me to be great and I want to be great and figuring out how to communicate that with each other but yeah he was really the only person that I ever worked with for a long long time yeah and, you know, you want to be great because he's trying to give you everything he can, and he wants me to. It was fun. A little was Doc fun. Rivers, Austin Rivers yeah. dynamic, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we were never uh, at that level. Thank you. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I, I, I've seen your scores. I know you can play. Uh, and you did play at Illinois, so you joined the team there. Yeah. You guys were, you know, that was kind of the, the maybe not start. They've always had good teams back to Steve Stricker and um, – Man, they got a lot of Hall of Famers and PJ Tour players. But uh, from your time, who are some of the, the studs you played with? Yeah, had- so I played with uh, Patrick Nagel, Mark Ogren was there, Andy Shields, John Crick, Scott Langley was coming in as I was leaving. Joe Affront, 
Uh, Joe was before my time. Joe was leaving as I was coming in. So we, yeah, we had a host of great players. Now, I, I think it's funny that after we kind of got done was when the team really started to take off. I don't know how. It's eight, nine, maybe ten Big Ten championships, yeah. and they've been ranked in the top ten every year. The thing about college golf that was interesting to me is you get perspective really quick. So I had never played many national tournaments in high school, which I think has completely changed now. All these kids playing national tournaments around the country almost year-round. I had never had that type of experience. So I, I jump into these tournaments, and all of a sudden you're paired with J.B. Holmes. You know my, my favorite story, and ultimately the one I think that led me to the decision to not play golf for a living, was um, at the uh, USM, and I'm playing with J.B. Holmes. And I looked at my dad, who was caddying, and I said, Dad, if I have to compete with this guy to eat, there's no chance. <laughs> he hits it 50 by me. He chips it better. He puts it better. You know, there's always that thing of entrepreneurship. I'm going to run through the wall. But you just look at what's the type of talent that's out there and you assess, am I capable of that? And wonder, is this where I should be spending my time? <laughs> that, that was the eye-opening thing about college golf. In that tournament, I, put, I was paired with Matt Every and J.B. Holmes. Not and, a bad parent. Uh, hey, both of which have done pretty well for themselves. But it allows you to assess the state of your game pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um my my guy was Jason Kokrak for me. Fantastic player too. It's someone I, I grew up playing junior events around Northeast Ohio with. Yeah. And then I got paired with him in uh, a tournament in Cincinnati. I think it was Xavier's tournament. Yeah, his his team's tournament. And he had put on he finally grew, you know, I was still a little shrimp and he he was this big guy with unbelievable touch around the greens yeah. and just hammered the ball 320 down the middle of the fairway with a Titleist J driver or whatever we're hitting. <laughs> And and I just yeah turned to my my mom and dad and my dad already knew he's like yeah you should probably you know improve those grades yeah <laughs> make sure <laughs> make sure you're in into the business school <laughs> there's just something I mean you see those guys um, there was a tournament that I played with Jeff Overton who's had a decent career himself and you know it's a downhill three foot slider and we're both up there and I get up there you know and I give it the little tap because I'm pretty hesitant and it rolls all the way to the bottom of the green so I'm walking after my ball to mark it and put it back up and he gets up there and he drops his ball down and he bangs it in the back of the cup so much so that it jumps up two feet near the bottom and he's already on the next tee waiting for me to four putt from the bottom of the green and you just look at that and like there's something a little different about those guys that just makes him go yeah and but that college golf was an amazing experience yeah yeah I every time I we, we talked to the um, men's uh, golf coach at DePaul okay. last week on the podcast. And, uh, you know, just hearing about their schedule and the places they're going and uh, the people get to meet. I mean, I, ha- I was having these flashbacks. And every time I see someone who's playing college golf, I just want to kind of shake them like Adam Sandler and Billy Madison say, you know, stay here. Stay as yeah. long as you can and enjoy this. Appreciate this. You take it for granted. I did. For uh, sure. We were playing golf every day. Every day. We were working out in the morning, we were going to school, we were eating lunch, and then we were straight to the golf course. And, you know, to look back on that type of opportunity and you're jumping on a plane to go play Pinehurst for seven days with 10 of your best buddies and your coach, and to think about that now, what an amazing opportunity that it's hard to appreciate as a 20-year-old. Yeah. No, I, I complained about something. I can't remember what. And if it whatever it was, it was stupid. You know, because it's just too sweet. Um, well, you started, to, you guys, that's such a cool program to be a part yeah. of, too. And you played for Mike Small? I did. And he he had been there 
four or five years prior to me getting there. So I think he was really starting to build a reputation as a he had built a reputation as a player. He was building a reputation as a coach, and he was fantastic to learn from. Um, a guy like that that could play would jump into our qualifiers and our rounds, and he could push you and he could teach you because he had been there. And those are the things that you wanted. And I think he, he only progressed and got better over time, which shows in the results that they've had now. When I was there, they ended up building um, the facility, that indoor facility, which as a Midwest school, yeah. the chance to go in and be able to chip and putt and hit balls and track man and all that other stuff is just a huge advantage. Yeah, that that uh, I've seen only pictures of it. It looks it's incredible. It's incredible. I you know was there the day that it opened. I, I it may have been my sophomore year. Uh, you know, it changes the recruiting game and even the players that are there. It now gives you a chance to work on your game the entire winter. Yeah. Did so? Did Mike just throttle you guys in practice? Like, yeah. did he take no mercy? Just said, "All right, Mac, I'm taking you down today." Yeah. And, uh, yeah. He always used to say, "Hey, there's no better way to get better." than to throw yourself into the fire and just get beat. And if you're if you're a competitor, you will figure out a way to keep up and eventually get better. And um, so there's no coddling of anybody. And that's I think that's the culture of college golf. You take six to eight to 10, maybe 12 players, the best players that you can find, you throw them out there and they're gonna learn and get better from each other. Um, you know, You know this, but you go through these qualifiers where everybody's fighting for those five spots in a tournament. And you know, may the best man or, or lady win and then that's who goes and plays in the tournament. Yeah. And he, very, you know, he very much believed that it was super competitive to I, get a spot in a tournament. I like that approach. I don't think every golf team out there has that approach, but um, more democratic. Let the best man win, and it really uh, boasts a more competitive environment. Oh yeah, we had to do. Hopefully, it's okay to share a few stories. Oh, for sure. We had to do this fun thing at the beginning of every year. So you just came off of summer break. And in order to even be a part of the qualifier for the first tournament, you had to break 70 from all, I think it was either five or four sets of tees at Stone Creek. So it's a very Lynx-type golf course. Mm -hmm. So you'd go out there and you'd have, I want to say like six or seven days to do it. Now, you don't have any class at that time. So you go, you know, you go shoot 60 from the red tees and then you shoot some number from the white tees and that, then you go to the blue tees and then there's the black tees in the back. And you had to break 70 from every tee in order to even get in the qualifier. So what would happen is, hey, if you were fortunate to just get it done in the first couple of days, then there was no stress. But what would happen is those, as the timeline would get shorter and shorter, you were under the gun in order to qualify for the qualifier. I thought that was an amazing um, setup that he put together that really taught, it encouraged how to make a ton of birdies from the, you know, the red and the white tees and then their stress being applied to those later rounds to just get in the qualifier. Well, yeah, that's I like that a lot. I mean, that's because the hardest thing to simulate is pressure. Yeah. You know, tournament pressure. It's so different than in any normal round, and even a qualifier doesn't necessarily you know create that same level of, of anxiousness around yeah. putts. But that's that's pretty good. It was, um, and that was what we did every year to get into the first tournament. Oh wow, wow! We had a coach, uh, Donnie Dar, now the assistant coach at Oklahoma State. Nice. He. Uh, we stunk when he showed up. We weren't very good at University Akron Zips. Go Zips, and and he uh, he said, "All right, move up forward tees." And we're like, "Whoa, you know, that's like that's under six thousand yards from there." He goes, "You guys, you guys can't make birdies from where you're playing, so you better move on up." And we played there for like two weeks, you know, playing the red tees, forward tees. <laughs> um, but you know what it did? It uh, incented uh, competitive 
drive about us, you know, making birdies and confidence, yeah. instilled confidence. And then we slowly started working back to the OTs, but uh, similar to, to how Mike does the qualifiers. I mean, that, that, um, that's cool. Teaches you to go low too, right? There, I think there's this nervous factor for golfers who are getting to that new range of, hey, I'm five under or I'm six under. And the, the numbers themselves, I think, bring stress. So if you play on the red tees and all of a sudden you're 10 under, just saying that feels, oh my, oh my gosh. Yeah. So if you start to get comfortable with that level of play and those types of scores, it, I think it transitions into the game from the, you know, the tees where you would play most championships from. Absolutely. You're used to being that far under par. Yeah. Which yeah. I never got used to, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I'd still feel woozy. All right. <laughs> Says Mr. Course Record Holder. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for slipping that in. Um, what do you think's changed with kids golf, like growing up? A couple of things you said made me think about, you know, uh, a kid growing up playing the game of golf in the 90s versus what we see now. You know, there's, uh, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have made a college team now with the amount of, um, skill, strength. Yeah. Uh, but what, what do you think it would, what do, what do you see are going to be the biggest difference? Like if your kids, yeah. you know, pick up the game. I think there's more focus and specificity to one sport earlier on. I would show up at a golf tournament with my baseball uniform on. And then I would leave the golf tournament putting my basketball uniform on in the car to go play a game. And one could argue, hey, that that gave you some some level of diversity in terms of sports that you're playing and a chance to explore new things. But I think kids that are growing up to now, I, I think there's very little playing of multiple sports. Um, I don't have any facts to support that. It's just what I see in my friends who are having kids. They're generally playing a lot of golf or a lot of basketball or a lot of baseball. I think the training has started so much younger. Um, I don't know if you know John Perna and his TPS school. Yeah. Yeah. So they have, I want to say it's Where's 90, that located? That's I think it's Downers Grove. Downers Grove, yeah. They, I, I want to say they have 100 Division One golfers. Whoa. And they've come up with a formula for how to teach these kids to play great golf. And, you know, as you think about, you know, me raising two kids and if they want to play golf, that's one thing. Do they want to be great at golf and how do you help to facilitate that? Um, so that's what I think has changed. I think they're starting earlier. I think they're focusing on it more. And, you know, when I was playing, fitness and strength and workouts, I think, was just getting started. Tiger was yeah. in incredible shape, but he was the only one. Right. And now you look at Justin Johnson and Brooks Kepka and Jason Day and Roy McIlroy. These guys have literally changed their bodies to become athletes. And the game is all about speed and distance and that's what's being taught in these in these young kids. Bomb it, find it, hit it on the green, and make a putt. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that is the core difference. You know, all those things add up, but the, the tech and the speed—that's for sure. Oh, biggest piece. I I don't remember being fit for clubs. And <laughs> yeah. maybe that's hey, that's you're just uh, yeah. my. That was just my scenario, but I know friends who are having their kids being fit for clubs at super young ages, and we're you know we're working on driver flex and loft and uh, specialty shafts, and that. But that's just where the game is going. Custom, custom experience. Everyone wants it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so for you know score and, and performance, uh, maybe you were always able to score. You've been a good golfer, but I know people that have played with you. And they all walk away with, like, he's a great guy to play golf with. 
And I, I, that's something I spend probably far too much time thinking about is like, I hope people enjoy playing golf with me. Like for our, for anybody who's thinking about that, like what are some tips you would share with people to, um, to just be a, a, a pleasant person to be out there on the course with? Yeah. So a lot of my golf is spent hosting other people and I consider it to be my job and my responsibility to make that day great for them. And therefore it's not about me. So I'm not going to be spending five minutes figuring out my shot. I'm going to walk up to it. I'm going to hit it. And then I'm going to be telling stories about the golf course or, you know, somebody that I played with five years ago that had a great shot or, Hey, here's how you would play this one because the green breaks that way. And the wind is coming at you. Uh, That's fun for me, right? That's what I do for work. And when I'm out on the golf course, my job is to make that day or that experience memorable for somebody who's with me, not because of my play, but because they just enjoyed it. Uh, And that's everything from, you know, the drinks and the food and the course knowledge and the architecture. And it's fun. So that, that's hopefully what people take away and it's not about me and what I score and the shots that I hit. Yeah, that's great. I, I like the way you say that. Um, and when you're going elsewhere, I mean, you've probably been able to be invited and play some phenomenal golf courses. Like what's a good guest to you? What, what's being a good guest in a foursome like? Uh, hey, just respecting the place that you're at, um, you know, and, and being a good guest I just want everybody to have fun. I mean, that that's what golf is about for me now. Yeah. And if you can go, it's always fun to compete and be a part of a game. So if you have a great game going that's super competitive, you never want anybody to get throttled in a game. Um, you know, I play with plenty of people who like that. That's not the point. It's, yeah. you know, if something comes down to the last hole in a match, that is fun. You yeah. know, and then you get done and you, you grab a couple of drinks and you hang out. That's, that's a great cast yeah. in my mind. That's good. Well, uh... I don't know, anything else golf-related you wanted to share, chat with, or how? Let's see. Well, I'm excited to play some golf with you. That's what we're going to get get done this spring. I I think the game is at a more interesting place than it's been in a while. I think Tiger, so just to speak to, you know, some of the things I see in the game, I watch, there was a time when I only watched when Tiger was playing. I was a huge fan. And I think, like Ricky, this weekend, I watched the whole thing. And Same. I was really happy for him. I'm a fan. And I don't know if anybody saw this, but two years ago he was winning that tournament. He had some issues, and uh, he cried in the press conference. Right. And I think golfers are becoming more relatable than they ever have before. I think they have such a broad reach. I'm, I'm So I'm excited about that. I think Tiger dominated the game for so long. He still does. But I think some of these other players that are coming up have incredible personalities, incredible brand recognition. And to watch them play incredible golf is becoming fun again. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's the general state of the game I think is in a good place. I've heard people suggest that numbers are going in the wrong direction. And, you know, that always worries me a little bit, but I don't see that happening in any of my circles. And um, I, I think the, um, what's, what's interesting to me is that the number of rounds has, yeah. uh, you know, you still have your, your most avid golfers playing on average more rounds, I think, was what they advertised as being a tick up, you know, yeah. National Golf Foundation or whatever it is. But um, overall, rounds are going down, but, you know, consumption of the game is going up. Yeah. So things like Top Golf and viewership of the PGA is, is getting stronger. Um, content, you know, people are tying into outlets like Andy yeah. Johnson and No Laying Up. And, and so that's awesome. What I wonder is, you know, does watching Ricky win and being invested in that story? Does that get you a club in your hand? Does that yeah. get you out on grass? Yeah. 
And I think that's the thing that we don't know. We, we don't know right now. Um, but hey, we'll find out. Yeah. Well, and what it what is it that would cause that trend? Is it the time? Is you know, time seems to be the the driver for why people are so concerned. They would say people don't have five and a half hours to spend on a golf course. Well, how are we continuing to improve pace of play and all of those things? Yeah. Yeah. Leaving the stick in for putts. <laughs> what do you how do you feel about that? Uh so we finally played in twenty nineteen. You know, we were down in Florida for the PGA show, so we went out to Stream Song. Yeah. And that was our first kind of, you know, time with the pin in. I love it. Yeah. I'm a huge fan. As a basketball player, you yeah. might you might appreciate this. <laughs> you know, like the the whole eye thing, like mine gravitates to the back of the rim. Now I'm just looking at the center of that that pin from a point of where the ball goes into. Yeah. So visually, I'm I'm all over it. I'm gonna be like, I'm gonna. Who's a good putter this year? I don't know who the best putter. Well, look Jason at, Day. Look I'm at Adam like Jason Scott. Day yeah, Adam Scott always has had trouble putting, and you know, I get it's the first couple of tournaments, but he's putted great. You know, and he's gone to the what do they call it? The, the old arm bar. Or, yeah, and uh, he's leaving the stick in, and he he played great at Tory. Yeah, I, I, it is hilarious that. Well, he, I know that they're saying statistically, it's like maybe a percent uh, better odds from the ball actually hitting the flag stick. It will help putts go in, yeah. um, but y- you can't put a percentage on just like a confidence thing. If it, if you like the look of it, it will help you. Yes, it will, and, and the, you know. So we'll see. If you don't like it, take it out. Yeah, uh, I think it's weird though when you're in a group. This happened down in Stream Song where like I'm trying to roll a, a five footer, and the guy we're playing with is at four feet, and I'm like, yeah. Put that pin back in. I felt like kind of a dick saying it. <laughs> this is what I'm most curious. I have not played yet when that rule is available. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm getting ready to go play some golf in Florida. And yeah, you know, we'll all have 10 footers and this guy will want it out. And this guy will want it in. And this guy will want it out. And is that really going to speed up play? No. No. <laughs> no. It, it's a weird dance. <laughs> yeah. And uh, hey, better reason to take a caddy. Yes. Get some caddies on the course. This is true. You know? This is true. Um, well, all right, man. Uh, oh, the one question, I, I last question for you. The vest. Oh yeah. Give us some background on the vest. If you don't know Andy, follow him. He does a great series on entrepreneurship called the Daily Vest, uh, and he wears a lot of vests. Yes. So tell, tell us Every where day. that started. I think six years ago we were going to an event. We were a little worried about how the event would go. If I'm being transparent, I don't think we were as prepared as we would like to be for this event. And we said, how can we mix it up? How can we make it a little fun? So we ended up. Our bright idea was we're going to wear T-shirts with vests over the top. And it ended up being a great event, more than we could have ever expected. And the bet after was, I said, hey, I think I could keep this going. And the gentleman who I was at the event with said, hey, I'll bet you that you can't keep it up for 30 days. So the bet was, hey, can you wear a vest for 30 days? I had to polish it up a little bit with a dress shirt underneath, but it's been probably six years. And it becomes your trademark. And you know, if you don't wear one, people are worried. They think something's going on. <laughs> and, you know, over time you accumulate all these vests and people even give them to me as gifts now. And I just, I have a lot of them and I wear one every day and I don't feel right without one. And people are nervous. If I don't you show up with yeah, I, would, becomes, I would be, I wouldn't recognize you. It becomes part of who you are. Uh, how many approximately are? There's 32. 32 vests. Yeah. That's a, that's, I thought it would be higher. It's not obnoxious, but it's enough to switch it up and not, you know, not. Do you know what starts when time. you start having a trademark like this? I think uh, folklore starts working its way in. <laughs> I, like I think I've heard other stories about why Andy wears a vest. Like he's got like a hole in his chest somewhere <laughs> that he's covering up. Or, but None of but that. one None of one that. that I do want to know if it's true or not. Did you get a sewing machine for? <laughs> 
you had like a like a was it a vest business you were thinking about? Hey, there there were times when the entrepreneur in me thought, <laughs> um, what could we do with this? <laughs> Luckily, uh, we made some good decisions there and just voided all thoughts of hey, other people might want to wear vests or or the ability to just build my own. So yeah, there were some crazy things that we tried. <laughs> hey, as as an entrepreneur, you know, you're always looking for that next. You gotta have an angle, man. What's the next thing? What's that was a thing? bad idea. That was a bad idea. I feel good in these vests. And this is gonna make millions of dollars. Well, thanks, man. This is awesome to have you join us. Uh, you're you're kind of our um, non golf golf uh, host, which was, or guest, which is really cool. And you're doing great stuff Thank with you. your business and for the the community. If anyone, we got a lot of entrepreneurs in the group. You know, you've done so much for entrepreneurship in in Chicago and starting to help build this community of people that can you know look to others for advice and support so kudos man keep it all with great work thanks One, for joining and thank you guys and it's it's exciting to watch you guys go on your journey and um, tremendous success to start and it'll only get better from here so i'm excited to watch and be some small part of it that was andy mack co-founder and ceo of snap mobile thanks andy for sharing your story and a special thanks to the development team at snap Those individuals who have put in the hours to build a great new app experience for members of New Club this season.